Welcome to episode two of Explore History's podcast, Memories of Old Warlinum, a window into village life in Victorian times. In the first episode, we heard Arthur Burdell tell all about his early school days, some of the mischief the boys would get up to. In this episode, Arthur begins by telling us about a more violent side to village life. Let's see what he has to say. The glory of my life was fighting. We all fought here at Warlinum. I've seen many a battle and participated in them too. I've had my head bashed with sticks and stones, blood run down my neck, and my head was so sore that it was impossible to lay on the bruised sides while in bed. We had a lovely pitch battle here on one occasion. I was there as a spectator. A red deer rough gang came up special for the fray from Croydon one Sunday afternoon. I heard of it when I came out of church at night, that they were up here and all gone up to the hare and hounds. About half past eight, they all came up the road towards the village with nine policemen behind them. An extraordinary number of police for those days. All the Warlinum men were waiting for this in the Horseshoe Inn. Someone gave the signal and they all rushed out, ran across the green, meeting the others just before they reached was now the workmen's club. My, wasn't there a crash. They all went at it, hammer and tongs. The police could do nothing. Talk about Irishmen with their shillelaghs. There were fights of every description, sticks, stones, and fists. Hats flew all over the road. Men were knocked down. Many of the Croydon men came up the chapel road. One man, the ringleader, named Dermis Stanley, got a terrific bashing. He was smothered in blood. A wonderful, powerful man of splendid physique, but he was helpless against numbers. He was dragged about the road in a most inhuman way. Finally, the police stepped in, kept back the Warlinum men. This man they then got up and went on alone homeward to Croydon, and that ended the last fight that I ever saw in Warlingham. Our vicar, a young man and a perfect athlete, tried to stop the fight, but he too was powerless till it was over. Then, seeing what he was up against, he used the influence to such extent that he won the hearts of all and, and taught the men how to play the game. He was just the man that Warlingham needed at this critical period. He was the bishop's chaplain, and before he was inducted, came over from where the bishop then lived many times. He was the bishop's chaplain, and before he was inducted, came over from where the bishop then lived. He used to leap all the gates and stiles as he came across the fields. My attention was attracted to him by Mr. Ward, who asked, Have you seen the new parson? He leaps all the stiles. Mr. Marriott was a splendid cricketer, and this game was what they all loved. Soon he taught them how to play the game in more senses than one. He could drive a ball better than them all. They all worshipped him. He was a superhuman in their eyes. Consequently, he had a wonderful influence for good in the parish. He brought order out of chaos. It was a grand sight to see the whole village turn out in those days, lining all the rails round the old recreation ground, watching intently the interesting cricket matches. I've seen county players participate in the games at times, and under Mr. Marriott's tuition, it was fine to see every young man on his toes to give of his best. One great event in our village life here was the disposal of the Smith Charity. Notices were posted as to the date. The bakers came with their appointed number of quarter and half-quarter loaves to the old mission room, where they duly set out on tables. The overseers and way wardens took up their positions, and we all duly flocked in. Their times were bad in those days. Wages were low, and in such a winter as in 1895, nearly all the village was out of work, and precious little to eat. The grocers read out from a list of names the amount that was due to each poor person, present and the amount duly handed to the recipients. Deputies were allowed to collect the share of those who were ill, etc. At the end it was found that there were some loaves over, 
as some had died, others left the village since the previous year. Young as I was, it was used to highly amuse me to hear the men and women haggle and plead their needs to have one of these extra loaves apportioned to them. 1895 was a most severe winter. The greater part of our village was out of work and destitute. Bones were bought from the butchers, converted into soup, which was sold by Mrs. Rao, organized by Mrs. Marriott at the mission room for one a quart to help relieve the situation. Mr. Gammon, who lived at Deanwood, gave great help by providing several tons of coal, which was deposited in sacks at the vicarage, to be distributed by Mr. Marriott to the most deserving cases. Another interesting thing organized by Mr. Marriott was the beating of bounds around our parish. I saw them passing along the parish boundary close to the viaduct. Young boys carried long peeled wands and beat the bounds as they passed along. Mr. Cheeseman had a coil of rope slung over his shoulders to be used later to haul one of the company up the face of the steep chalk cutting of the L&B and SC Railway, close to Riddlesdown. As they passed Well Farm, a boy was pushed through an open window of a building which stood on the boundary. Our old schoolmaster, who went with the party, told me that they had some fun at Kingswood Lodge Meadows. Here the boundary went through a meadow of high grass, set aside for hay, so only one or two walked through the grass, but the old gardener there spotted them, ran out shouting excitedly that he would have them prosecuted for trespassing. Then Mr. Marriott came up and read the details of the Act of Parliament relating to the beating of the bounds, while the old gardener looked aghast at Mr. Marriott with his mouth wide open. So completely taken aback was he that he could not say one word, which highly amused all the party present. The last and most interesting improvement to our village by Mr. Marriott was the restoration and enlargement of our old parish church. Mr. Wadsworth, the previous vicar, took but little interest in the church. Of course, the whole parish was very poor. Farming was at a low ebb and wages were very low indeed. One pound, no shillings, no pence a week was the normal wage paid. Many were paid less. Mr. Wadsworth was nearby here in residence. Archdeacon Hobbs officiated here for a long time. He came from the island of Mauritius, and Bishop Ropton from the same place for a time lived at Hallelujah Farm. Consequently, the church got into a very dilapidated condition, especially so the roof and the plasterwork of ceilings. Owing to wet penetration, huge patches of plasterwork were often falling down. It was only a crude four form of heating which filled the church full of smoke. Services were in the afternoon in wintertime, and there were no funds for anything. One collection a month to cover costs of communion was all that was taken. Apart from the choir, which was a good one, and the Sunday school children and teachers, few people came to church, except on harvest festivals, which were held on a weeknight. When the church was always packed, it was our grand day at church. My, didn't all of us sing. We had an anthem each year, too. Mr. Albert Baker was our organist put his whole life into church work, teaching in the Sunday school at the mission room and giving us choir boys lessons in the staff notation marked out on a blackboard. My, we had lovely happy times at the old mission room under the leadership of Mrs. Deersley, wife of the local doctor. She organized all with the help of Miss Burfield, the farmer's daughter at Worthenham Court, Miss Hoadley, daughter of the farmer at Bat's Farm, and Albert Baker. We paraded from the mission room to the church twice every Sunday, and at Christmas time, Mrs. Dursley gave a grand treat, choir and all included. I laugh even more over some of the episodes that took place. After the tea, we had singing. Tis this that amuses me to remember how the choir men sang. 
One called Snobbly Geoffrey always voted for the roast beef of old England, and he always got it. See the great enjoyments it gave them to sing this was a joy untold. Snobby was a bass singer, and this had a bass part just to his liking. They always ended up with the mistletoe bow, then came lights out, and all candles were extinguished. Plates were filled with snapdragon, set fire to, and the contents gobbled up by the men, whose visages scared me. Mid the blue flames so much so that I never touched for one for fear of getting burned. The church organ in those days, when the church was dark and damp, was a very wheezy affair with notes often sticking down. It stood on the floor at the back of the church, not on a lift as now. I was the blower for a year or two. I stood close up to Mr. Albert Baker, the organist, so that I could look over the music as I blew. Two shillings, sixpence a year was my remuneration. After all, love is the greatest thing in the world, and I jolly well got my fill of it, as I was lost in the joy of singing as I blew. Mr. Baker paid me a great compliment when he said that my treble voice thrilled him. Said he, I wish I had a voice like Arthur Burdell. You see, the choir in those days all sat close to the organ. We had anthems for Christmas and Easter, as well as for Harvest Festival, Jackson's Te Diem, I loved. We then tried through and through to get them perfect. Sometimes Mr. Baker gave each part their notes, and we all sang while he left the organ to go towards the chancel to study the acoustics from there. But oh, it was cold on winter nights, especially so across church field, with no organized footpath and as bad inside the church with just a few candles for light and heat. So I was delighted when we reverted to the mission room, where there was a very inferior grate. In this we made a fire of sticks which we collected outside from under trees and hedges, making a more inviting and happy choir practice here. We had a harmonium to accompany us. Mr. Albert Baker's father, Mr. James Baker, was the clerk of the church, as he was called in those days. He used to find the lessons for Mr. Wadsworth, but the old gentleman oftentimes did not know where to begin. He used to turn over the leaves in an agitated manner, then get redder and redder in the face. Once he called out, Baker, Baker, I've lost my place, and Baker would go to his rescue, Usually he anticipated what was coming when the old man began to fumble and went at once to help him out of trouble. The old man would read the lessons through and also his sermons at a rapid rate. He finished the latter at times in three minutes, yet he never objected to anything that Mr. Albert Baker introduced in the way of music. The Bakers held the clerkship for about 100 years. One of the family during his period of office moved to Limpfield and to his credit still carried on from there. In those days, the clerks had to collect the tithes of the parish. The clerkship passed out of the Baker family with the death, death of Mr. James Baker. The enlargements of our old church was a big undertaking. During the progress of the work, divine services were held at the old school at the vicarage. After the work had started, a big alteration of the plan had to be made on account of the interesting things brought to light on the south wall in the form of Sedilia and Tisivai, to Mr. Marriott and procured the first archaeological architect in Mr. J.M. Johnston, an authority on this type of work. We've seen a grand example of his work at Stoke to Auburnon, a lovely little church which has a wonderful brass in chainmail of John Abernon, 1277. The only example of a knight in chain armor. For the first time in my life, I saw our church bell. It was taken down and stood in the churchyard, and of course, we had to test its weight by lifting it. An organ loft was built and a new organ given by Mr. Worthington's church and friends was installed. And Dr. Bennett from Norwich Cathedral, a friend of Mr. Church, came here on several occasions and gave organ recitals. 
Mrs. Eastwood was the postmistress here when I was a boy. She lived in a small cottage pulled down when Woodlands was built by Mr. Joel Ward. The postman walked up from Croydon with the letters in the afternoon and left them at her house until next morning when they were delivered by this postman. If you expected a letter, one frequently called at Mrs. Eastwood's in the evening, where if you were lucky, the letter was handed to you. We had no shops, only little asides at the public houses. Mr. Dean at the Leather Bottle was a butcher, and his sons used to ride horseback carrying out the meat in baskets. It was fine to see them riding, bumping the saddle with a big basket of meat resting on their knee. At the White's Inn, Mr. Churchill sold groceries, added also Mrs. Lee at the, the horseshoe. She was also one of our local bakers. She baked the bread in an old-fashioned oven, using bundles of bushes and wood to get up the heat. When hot, these embers were swept to one side, the loaves inserted on a peel. The loaves came out lovely and tasty, even if they were a wee bit of wood ash clinging to the bottom of the loaves at times. Later on, Jeetmore, Southdown, and Salon House were built. Mr. Walter Hodgson then became our baker, with an up-to-date oven, and he looked after our parish right well. Jack Rose, a primitive butcher who killed his animals outside in full view of everyone, moved into Southdown House as soon as it was completed, moving out from the tiny shop now known as Nellie Fields. About this time we had an arrival of Mr. Ebenezer Wilson, who wrought a big change in foodstuffs in Warlingham. He started with a small shop on the site where Mr. Coe's shop now stands. Mr. Wilson's shop has since been pulled down. He sold his wares as cheap as they could be bought in Croydon thus saving the poor persons the necessity of walking to and from Croydon to purchase a week's grocery, where every penny, penny counted. Take off my hat to those women of oh, the part had, who had to trudge through inches deep of mud and dust in all weather, carrying back a heavy load on their backs and part in front, for they usually had two bags, one in front and one behind, tied together with a handkerchief over their shoulders. They knocked out all of their competition. Soon he had to seek out a new shop, Glebe Road had just been made, and he acquired the corner site and built up what is now known as Ringer's Stores. Here he eventually had a grocer's shop, a china shop, a butcher's shop, and a draper's shop, and also an ironmonger's shop, later run by Mr. Ringer. We early on had no fire engine here, and I only remember one fire, and that was at Hill House, when a pony was burnt to death, belonging to our local harness maker, Mr. Housco. I saw it lying dead outside. Later, a farmer named Mr. Tobram came to Chelsham Place Farm. He provided a manned fire engine, fire station, and hoses. He provided a manned fire engine, fire station, and horses. Worthington was proud of this, then grand turnout, and were keen on their drills. They competed against surrounding teams far and near. Mr. Harry Golden and Mr. Leopard were two of the smartest at drilling. Mr. John Quelterton was the captain. Mr. Trobram also had an ox, which he used to drive about Worlingham in a cart. I saw our old fire engine alongside his neighbours from Caterham at Pilgrim's Farm in a cart lodge where they were resting after a life's work. I felt sad when I saw them, just before the last war began, and felt that they should have been preserved at Worlingham or Caterham as relics of the past. No doubt this farmer, Mr. Spence King, had acquired them just for the wheels, which he could use on his own vehicles, now that wheelwrights are fast dying out. The flint industry here was a great one, and greatly helped all the parish, especially so for the farmers. Hundreds of yards were picked and carted to Croydon and all the district for the repair and maintenance of the roads, from all the farms in our district. 
The flints were carted and spread into the ruts on the two roads in our parish, and left there until the wagons and carts ground them in, as there were no steamrollers in those days, nor parish councils. Consequently, the roads were in a shocking state, with mud in winter and dust in summer. This mud was scraped off with mud hose by the old roadmen. Several of the sales family were thus employed. This mud was carted to dumps by the roadside by contractors, who paid a pound a mile for it. When it was dry, it was screened and used for building sand, Mr. Ward taking a good quantity of it. Contracts were invited each year for the supply of flints from the Godston Union, which were delivered broken on the road at stated times. "'Twas fine to see the flint breakers at work. The Peckett family were great at this type of work. What I loved to see most was the squared-up heaps after the flints were broken, just over a yard high and looking so very symmetrical, so pleasing to the eye. Mr. Walker from Godstone was the road surveyor. Mr. Willett, Rainer Hill's predecessor at Caterham, made Station Hill in 1885 from the crossways at the Laurels to the bridge over Workhouse Lane, now Hillbury Road, at the bottom. I, with lots of others, picked flints for this road from Housefield Road. Mr. Guilford had bought West Hall as the LB and C Railway was now finished. Mr. John Hodgson marked out the plots of land for sale. Of course, there were no houses at West Hall then, only the farmhouse and a cottage now pulled down. The old cart lodge, part of the farm building, still stands by the side of the road. This road was a very narrow one from Hillbury Road near the old school and down Succombs Hill and very rough indeed. Its width can still be estimated by the part still left intact and called Narrow Lane at the top of Succumbs Hill. Mr. Guilford put a reserve on the land alongside this narrow lane so that it could be widened at any time. Elmwood, owned by Mr. Timothy Frum, who at one time lived at Westhall Farm, was the first house to be built. He also built the Laurels and Hillminster. Mr. John Hodgson stayed on in the farm cottage until practically all the land on the Westall farm was sold. He then moved to Woldingham to deal in the like manner with Upper and Nether Court farms which Mr. Guilford had also acquired. Tidcombe's farm, where old Mr. Jarvis used to live, now pulled down, was very interesting, and then it belonged to Lord Caterham, a descendant of Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist. There is a Pepys vault in Andridge Churchyard. It was there that the Pepys family lived at one time. The Britons in Unity Friendly Society had their headquarters at the old Leather Bottle Inn. I have in my possession their minute book from 1873 to 1884. And in this, there's an extract of the expenditures on their annual club feast from May 1876. Second extract is also very interesting. December 13th, 1875. Mr. Alfred Field, who has been on the sick list for some time past through the loss of his right hand, applied to the committee for the privilege that he might be allowed to do some trifling work so that he could give exercise to his arm, thereby feeling it necessary for his future welfare and would enable him to go off the funds the sooner. The question was put to the members present, and it was agreed to give him the privilege of exercising his limb by assisting his sons in the wood, but not to work for anyone to receive wages. I saw Mr. Field several years later driving a contractor's cart and saw him using his arm shoveling flints into the cart in the most dexterous way, equal to anyone who had the use of both arms. The Britons in Unity held their club feast on the village green. It was a grand sight to me as a boy, to see men climbing the greasy pole, large roundabouts, 
circuses with tightrope walkers and acrobats, and in 1879, a number of dark-reputed Zulu warriors in their native dress, men stuffing tow into their mouths, breathing out what appeared to be a red-hot mass of fire. I'm still puzzled how this was done. Stalls of all sorts, coconuts, some on tall sticks inside a basket at three throws a pence, and the usual type on low supports at one diabole. Horse races were run up the school road. All the common were packed, extending down to the village club. The dinner was held in the club room at the rear of the leather bottle. This room was used by Mrs. Crockett and Dartnell at a later date, who gave puppet shows which attracted all the village. They stayed here for weeks at a time, and one could get all the fun from the dramatic play, Mary Martin, or The Murder in the Red Barn, to The Babes in the Wood for the local children. Later, the old club room was used as the headquarters of the Salvation Army, who held it for a long time, doing some good work in the parish. Later, they rented the old chapel and carried out their good work there. In 1887, the Manchester Unity Order of Oddfellows formed a branch at the Old Horseshoe Inn when a club room was built at the back and a yard formed from some of the gardens in front of the Lees Cottages. This society was a great success from the start, as the Old Britons in Unity had finished up a long time, and this was what Worthingham wanted, a club of this type. The club feast day was a grand day, with banners borne by members heading to the church parade and brass band in attendance. All Worthingham turned out to see it. Conditions were now changed so that the fun of the fair could no longer be held on the commons, so suitable fields close by were always available for the purpose. Messrs. Crockett and Dartnell came to the new club room for a time, and a cheap Jack had his caravan standing in the yard for several weeks where he sold crockery ware, etc., to ready purchasers, with his usual patter thrown in gratis. One piece we remember was, there were three bells in a steeple in Sussex, two made of bell metal and one of leather, so that when they rang, the first bell went ding, the second went dong, and the old leather bell came in wallop. The Wesleyan Chapel ran a first-class drum and fife band led by Mrs. Dallas, who lived at the Furs, which was up to then two houses, one of which was occupied by the Reverend Slowcock at that time. The band was well patronized and created a most pleasant diversion in our village when they paraded, as they often did. One of the guards, a drum major, came over from Caterham to instruct the drummers in a small classroom attached to the chapel. Here they made a mighty din. Mr. Walter Beese and Mr. Fred Leppard were the two best fifes. In conjunction with this band was run a Blue Ribbon Army Temperance Society. One interesting thing belonging to those days was the large amount of parishioners taking walks along the old footpaths. It was a lovely sight, especially so on Sunday evenings, to see the numerous lovers and whole families sauntering leisurely along, having a few pleasant words with everyone they met, admiring the cornfields, woodlands, and lees, which in themselves made our village a pleasant place to live in. This pleasant sort of thing was not confined to my day, as my mother told me that Dr. Epps, the homeopathic doctor who at one time lived at the Meadows, when she was a girl, used to acquire all the empty houses he could for his patients to live in, and he used to take them daily on rambles round Worms Heath, etc., for the benefit of their health. She told me many other interesting things about our parish, that it was all common land from the ledgers to the old vicarage, Worlingham, and the post office was on the site of the Horseshoe Inn. There lived Mr. Brooks' farrier and grocer. A man brought the letters up from Croydon about 11 a.m. and took the others back. Everyone had to call for and put their letters here. There were no deliveries to the houses and no pillar boxes. 
Parish relief was dispensed by a Mrs. Webb who lived at Tidcombe Cottages, now pulled down, where St. Budo now stands. She dealt out bread and flour. In the case of those with a large family, one shilling a week extra was allowed. The Warlinham windmill was then in daily use. It was run by Mr. Amos Ashby, who later removed to Croydon. He was a Quaker. The old mill stood on the right hand of the path from the Leather Bottle Club to the Workhouse Lane. I saw the foundations of it. One of millstones stood in front of the White Lion for a long time. The parish workhouse stood on the site of the Grange, one time the plantation. My mother took service with Mr. Sherborne, whose daughter married Mr. Sellis, who wrote poetry. Their son was the famous South African traveller. Their name was pronounced Slew. They lived at the plantation. To get a doctor in those days was a most difficult matter. The nearest was Dr. Hubert, who lived at Croydon. One had to walk there to fetch him, and again to get the necessary medicine. In later years, our Warlingham doctors had a surgery at Addington, where they attended to minister to the wants of the parishioners and Addington. I went over with Dr. Ross Todd during the severe winter of 1895. We went via Fairchild's and Addington Lodge in a light trap. The falling snow drove into our faces so that we had great difficulty to open our eyes. The roads were blocked so that we had to drive over ploughed fields. We first went to Mr. Stills, where the doctor stayed for over an hour, leaving me sitting in the open trap. Then we went to the Archbishop of Canterbury's residence, where I had another hour. I got down once to stamp my feet. When I went to step up into the trap, again, cramps seized me for a long time. I was afraid the doctor would come back before I could get free, but in the end it went, and I was mighty glad when I got home. I had only obliged because the doctor's coachman was on a law case as witness. In my early life here, many of the men were very illiterate. They could not read or write. Reverend Slowcock at the Furs tried to teach a few by inviting them to his house for evening instruction. It was not a success. They all got along quite well without it. In 1882, an old couple lived next down to me at Surrey Bank. The Egyptian War was then taking place. This old couple, to my delight, purchased a copy of Lloyd's Weekly News each week, the only paper procurable here at that time. And as they could not read, I went in their cottage and read it to them with the best of my ability. Many tramps were on the roads, and they were either ever calling our cottages begging for food. We had one connection with London. Mr. Arthur Constable used to travel to and from London each week, collecting and delivering parcels at the inns along the route from Limpsfield. This was before the new LB and SE Railway was opened. The old Caterham to Purley line was rather a crude affair. Only a single line, with no station at Whiteleafs. I remember Mr. Whitman and his son Bill were the drivers. On one occasion, the engine ran off the line. They managed to get it back again, unaided. At the Purley, it was called Caterham Junction. So many people got off there thinking it was Caterham that the name had to be changed to Purley Junction. Whiteleaf was a part of Warlingham then, and when new school board members and later parish council members had to be elected. All Whiteleaf residents had to walk up to the old school here to record their votes. Mrs. Clark told me an interesting thing that happened on one polling day. A candidate brought along an old illiterate man to vote for him. He was not allowed to point out to the old man where to put his X. Mr. Clark, who was doing the clerical work, said the old man was frustrated and put the X against the wrong man's name. That concludes episode two of Memories of Old Warlingham. We will get to episode three very soon, and I hope you enjoyed it. We can yeah. continue the story that uh, Arthur has been telling us of what village life was like 
in the late Victorian period. 